0: people of Earth and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason
1: McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprigg.
2: And I am Maureen Ellsbury. We're all alive after this pending Thanksgiving holiday. That's right.
1: <laughs> we
0: are um, not going to say that I don't have alcohol in my system at the moment, but uh, well, I will say I do have alcohol in my system. But thank you for joining us for this. What is December 1st? 2016 episode that's when this is airing and holy cow guys this year is almost over yeah good riddance 2016 we're not there yet but almost almost <laughs> well
2: it's not like we have some uh, super exciting 2017 approaching i'll <laughs> put it that way so
0: <laughs> it's got to be better than 2016 i'll just say that well for today guys we've got a great interview coming up later in the show with mr peter lavenda been excited about this for a while. For the past couple of episodes, we've discussed Tom DeLong's Secret Machines property and the books associated with that property. As we mentioned, Peter is the author of the forthcoming nonfiction books in the Secret Machines franchise. So hang on for that coming up pretty soon. Um, since our last episode, my book has finally been released. The book is titled Only Weirdos See UFOs, An Introduction to the Public's Misperception of Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in Extraterrestrial Life. You can get that on Amazon. And Ryan's book, Somewhere in the Skies, A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon, is on Amazon as well. And Ryan, it just makes me smile so much when I see my book on Amazon. And then it says, People who bought this book also bought Ryan's book. It's great.
2: Yeah,
1: that's really cool.
2: You guys, it's probably because I'm the only one who's bought either of your (laughs) books. (laughs) And so it's just automatically popping up.
0: I was going to say, it's probably just Ryan, me and Ryan, like buying each other's books. So.
2: That's all right, guys. Buying it our
0: own book between- and buying each other's yep. books. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, like, it. I live for this stuff, man. And, and we've all been in in the UFO field for for quite a while now. And this is not it shouldn't really phase us at all. I, I get a good kick out of it when I see this stuff happen. So the day, pretty much the day I publish the book and start advertising it, there's not a chance that soul in the world could have received a copy and read it when I started mm-hmm. posting this stuff. And already people were leaving the most amazing reviews and I'm going to keep these reviews and use them in marketing material in the future. But, you know, just the wonderful comments like this is the worst title ever and <laughs> you're making fun of it. it. It has to be serious. You can't make fun of it. And just, just fantastic things. And, and, uh, you know, I point out to the people, well, did you finish reading the entire title? Right. And you get the response. No. And frankly, I don't care to. Yeah.
2: All you right. Know, I well, saw have fun with it. Uh, yeah. Right before I shared it and I made sure, I mean, like people should, read that but we know better
0: people don't read even it. with
2: a, you know a title yep um however i i put the addressing the public's mis you know perception about mm-hmm. the f- fact that only weirdos see because that's not true um and of course there were still some people who saw the post and were putting sad faces and
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: no it's there's nothing sad about it it's saying not only weirdos see and then we you've got the you other
0: too, under yeah. other wonderful people who, you know, do have a, a sense of humor about it. They understand what the book is trying to present. And, you know, then they just embrace it. They're all,
1: weirdo right here, all right. Yeah, man, I think we all embrace that part of our lives. It's um you know, and you have to. Just own up to it. We we've like you said, Jason, we've been in the field long enough. We know how weird and strange it can be at times, but that's That's part of the fun, that's part of the mystery. Right, and you know, um, it sort of just shows how much of a headline culture we live in now. Like Absolutely. people aren't even willing to look at your subtitle. Absolutely, and it's all right there, man.
0: And that's why you know the fake news has become such a big thing because all you've got to do is post something with a with a headline of whatever you want, and that starts spreading around, and people will you know just read that headline, accept it, and share it, and pass it on, and then things like wildfires go out of control. And, yeah. you know, we saw a lot of that with, with the election, just people believing what they're seeing in these headlines that are being passed around. That's right. all people get past. They, I mean, that's all people read. They don't get past the headline, not even to the, the subtitle. It's really sad.
2: Stay educated and double check your sources. That's is right. Absolutely. That's right. Yep.
0: Well, but either way, Jason, on I'm the flip really side, looking forward to reading it. Yeah. Well, awesome, Ryan. I'm excited to hear that. I can't wait to hear what you think. Um, yeah I'm kind of kind of jealous uh I think Maureen might have been among the first if not the first person to hold a physical copy of this book in her hand oh cool so so yeah it was the first picture I saw of somebody holding the book was Maureen so and she's promptly uh dumped it off at her used bookstore so
2: yeah yeah (laughs) well like like I did for Ryan with my book selfie I'm Debating creative ways to give you an actual real book selfie, Jason. So Ooh. you'll get you'll get a better picture as soon as I read it. That Wait, would be are pretty you funny if my you...
1: book selfie wasn't real. Was that oh, green no.
2: screen? <laughs> I wish no, actually hiked through the rain up there. Um, awesome. no, I'm just still in I just sent Jason a a picture of the cover of the book though. Not nothing good. So <laughs>
0: Well, I I, I do... Feel free to borrow my example of giving the book away and showing a photo of it, like, at Goodwill or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, there is a new episode of our fictional paranormal audio drama podcast, Redactus, up on RoguePlanet.tv and or iTunes. It's also on iTunes. So check that out if you're a fan of audio drama. This one isn't uh, UFO-related per se, but uh, if you like paranormal topics and like audio drama. It's worth checking out more coming from Redactus, So stay tuned for that. Um, let's see. And I'll bring this up in recent weeks, a particular UFO related story has caught the attention of several media outlets around the world. Um, it's a pretty sexy story because it's about UFOs, which I think we can all agree are pretty sexy. Mm -hmm. And it's also about sex. So sexy story here. Um, Essentially, the Sid Gallup Company conducted a survey in 2012 of 1,200 people in the country of Panama, and it was published in the newspaper L.C. Globe. The survey found that more than a third of those polled who admitted to having seen a UFO said that they had experienced an intense sexual desire after the sighting. Now, there are several fascinating things about this, but... To me, and this is something we've discussed time and time and time again on the show, is just the fascinating way that old stories become new. Here's a story from 2012, and all of a sudden it's making headlines again at the end of 2016. Weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, either way, uh, this story is its kind of interesting, guys. I, I don't know what you really make of it. Um, you know, a lot of witnesses to UFOs, they say they often feel this sense of euphoria sort of yeah. spread over them. So you have to wonder, like, what is it kind of sparking within them uh, that's causing these uh, <laughs> these rather interesting reactions? So Ryan, you've,
0: you've personally sat down and, and, you know, had conversations with people who have had encounters and sightings and things like that. And you mentioned they described euphoria have any specifically described a sexual desire
1: not that i have come across um that that's why this article whether you know dated a few years ago or not um was interesting to me especially in this condensed area of uh panama as it were where it, where it was said to occur um i did not come across a single witness or uh <laughs> experiencer who Really described having any sort of arousal or uh, sexual appetite thereafter. Um, but, you know, we can kind of look at something like, you know, Halloween just passed. We all love horror movies. Um, well, most of us. And we do. Yeah. A lot of people think that, you know, when you're seeing a horror movie, that can really kind of, <laughs> you know, no pun intended, up the game. And uh, you become vulnerable, your adrenaline's pumping, and that can often. Take on many different forms, even sexual arousal at times. Um so it's interesting, you know, maybe because of this highly stressful situation of a UFO event, um, it's having these weird reactions to certain people. Or um maybe they feel so in danger that afterwards, uh, what do you want what are you gonna do when you feel like your life is threatened? That's uh,
2: of pleasure, yeah. Um yeah. And I think that, that that's a good point and what they, they make when they discuss the possible reasons uh, for this to occur is indeed after natural disasters or, like you said, periods of high stress. People tend to um, make babies and uh, do things like that. Uh, it, as for me personally, uh, I cannot say i have experienced the same and maybe it's i just need to go ufo spotting with a sexier group of people or something but (laughs) that would probably help uh uh yeah but it's it's again one of these really weird surveys that only 1200 people were were asked and um
0: well and even so i think when you look into the numbers i think it was far fewer because i think that was the total um polling group and only a small percentage of that group said that they had seen they had had ufo right. sightings and then mm-hmm. from that it was the 30 uh whatever percent that so said
2: really it was like three people yeah probably <laughs> No, uh but i think you make a yeah. great
0: point ryan i mean i i think you know it's very situational um i think that euphoria response uh explains a lot yeah i mean i Personally thinking about, you know, when I've had UFO sightings, it's pretty exciting, you know, it's kind of a rush. So you've got this high going from the sighting. If you're in the right situation, if you're with somebody else, you know, and you're both excited or happy or whatever, you're on this high from having this incredible experience, then sure, maybe sexy time is gonna happen. But you know, UFOs, that that experience creating sexual desire uh, just by itself i don't i don't think so i don't think so you, so it'd be interesting to talk to these a, specific a, people but yeah you don't yeah. think
2: it's an allure for uh extraterrestrials to mate with it, humans it's,
0: it's all part of their plot they're trying to get you in the mood and, yeah
2: <laughs> yeah well, i i
0: think just chalk it up to to the high of a sighting i mean sightings are pretty yeah. cool so absolutely so, Well, then, uh, yeah, that's enough sexy time for today. Well, in our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod, we highlight a historical UFO case. And today, we're highlighting the Trumbull County UFO incident of 1994.
1: On December 14th, 1994, reports began to flood in to the local 911 operator in Trumbull County, Ohio. The reports were of strange lights littering the sky. The operator on duty, Roy Ann Rudolph, assumed these were reports of balloons or planes of some sort. But the calls continued to overtake the entire 911 call center, and Rudolph soon notified the local police department to investigate. Sergeant Toby Maloro was the first officer on the scene. As he triangulated the location of the reports, he began to drive towards the lights. Suddenly, his police cruiser went dead. He attempted to restart the car to no avail. Then, a bright light enveloped the car from above. Sergeant Maloro exited the vehicle and stared up at a huge circular object with an intense burning light in the center. It made no sound whatsoever as it began to move north, away from him. His car soon restarted by itself. He hopped back in and tried to follow the object, but couldn't keep pace. He called his dispatcher and relayed the direction in which the object was heading. All units in the area were now aware of the object and began to pursue it. In total, about 15 police officers had seen the object, and some of their vehicles had died in pursuit of it as well. They all had openly discussed with one another their experiences over the radio that night. The local FAA was asked if they had tracked anything unusual on radar, to which they denied anything out of the ordinary. But this didn't please Lieutenant James Baker, who was fielding the incoming reports from witnesses across the county. He decided to investigate himself, climbing an abandoned radar tower and searching far and wide for the object. He soon caught sight of not one, but three objects in a triangular pattern. They seemed to be connected and began to change color in unison from reds, yellows, blues to green. He notified the other patrolmen and soon the object darted off and disappeared out of sight. Many tried to explain away the night's events as simple low-hanging stars in the sky, but this would not explain how the police vehicles that were near the object malfunctioned. It also wouldn't explain the close encounter that Sergeant Maloro found himself in. Others theorized that this was a top-secret military craft from the nearby Youngstown Air Reserve Base. This was denied, however, by Captain John Keitech, who stated that nothing was in the air that night, their control. UFO researcher Kenny Young did an in-depth study of the Trumbull County sightings, interviewing many of the officers who to this day still remain baffled by what had occurred. Young also had repeatedly sent Freedom of Information requests for any information pertaining to the night's events. Every single request was denied. Whatever happened in Trumbull County that night and the surrounding areas was truly something that local law enforcement, the FAA, or even the nearby Air Force Base could not explain in conventional terms. It was one of the most widely reported UFO sightings in Ohio's history and remains just as mysterious today as it did over the dark skies in 1994.
2: Dun dun dun! <laughs> so this is one of those really great UFO sightings because we have so many law enforcement professionals, and you know this went on for six hours, and we have recordings of the talk since it was in 1994, um, and it's kind of a mystery, uh, and there's not a lot of really good possible explanations at this point in time. I'm sure in 20 years somebody will be like, ah, we figured it out, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Right now I don't buy the twinkling uh stars theory. I don't think that that many people would call in and report that. It just doesn't really fit. So it's something uh, I
0: really like with cases, you know, this is one of the coolest and weirdest things to me with with some of these sightings is when you have electrical interference or whatever is causing problems with cars. Uh, what do you guys make of of cases where they claim that their, you know, vehicles stop you know that's something that, of course, is is very exciting and interesting, and they latched onto a lot in uh, in the X Files. Um, something we saw a lot, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, UFOs interfering with cars or motorcycles or whatever, making engines stop, making cameras stop, things like that. What do you what, what's your guys' take on things like that?
2: I think that, that there's there's a lot of really interesting cases even um, that we've talked about way in the past. I'm not sure uh, mm-hmm. on this show. But um, for instance, there was a, a car that uh, had electrical effects on it from 2012 or so that I know um, we have a friend that was investigating that and um, they found increased radiation levels of radiation on the car um, mm. as well as there's been ones with, you know, that there's been burned wires or, or you know, some sort of flammable effect that happens yeah. or, you know, fuzzy radio. Uh, it, it seems like something that even could happen if it was something, re- you know, uh, resulting from some sort of secret military aircraft coming over, because half the time we don't know what sort of technology is going on there uh, at the time uh, or else. You know, if you're interacting with something from some faraway galaxy or something, you you can't expect that uh, our measly technology might be able to uh, sort of function properly around that. Who knows? Yeah.
1: yeah, well, I think what the most important thing you said, Maureen, is that uh, we don't know if this is man-made or ET in technology, and it could be either. That is, you know that almost has no bearing on, um, the effect it has on the vehicles. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, it's scary that, um, that this can happen. I know even in my book, I interviewed two people, uh, both military. I, I might remind you that, um, that had this happen to them, one in a civilian vehicle and then one at a drive-in movie theater where an entire parking lot of cars would not start. So, I mean, there's the power right there of whatever this, uh, craft or crafts, has. It's 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 amazing um, that the, it can have the power to do that and leave you like utterly paralyzed in terms of your vehicle.
0: Yeah. And yeah, whatever's causing it is just absolutely fascinating and, you know, something that, hell yeah, it's worth investigating. And you've got, you know, in many of these cases where things have physically happened to cars, there are physical traces, like you mentioned, Maureen, things that, you know, actually can be looked at and say, yeah, something happened here. Um, Mm -hmm. Really weird stuff. And, you know, we can't discount natural occurring things, too. We know so little about, you know, this world, this planet we live on. And space is fascinating. And, you know, we take so much for granted that it's there. Like the northern lights. Yeah, there's stuff rippling through the sky. Cool. We look at it and say, oh, that's pretty. But, you know, there could be and most likely is all sorts of other things waving through the sky. All sorts of, you know, radiation and other things that we can't see they come in bursts and you know could have effects on on people and things but uh then again it could be aliens
2: yeah be i think i think another really cool thing about this case and well i shouldn't say cool um you should say I'd cool say an important it's cool thing about this case is looking at the way um the dispatchers and the police were receiving the calls there's recordings for you know to, It's like an hour long or something of just all these clips of recordings Mm. of uh, the dispatcher talking to the police and to the witnesses and uh, in the military bases uh, is that the way they handle it. So, you know, first, she sounds very uh, disbelieving and kind of you can tell people sound annoyed. Um, (laughs) You know, they're they're like, oh, yeah. okay, what does it look like? Where is this? You know, and kind of dismissive a little Mm -hmm. bit. But then as more calls come in, they start, you know, thinking this is weird. And at first they're like, ah, oh, laughing about it. Like, they're, I think she says something about there's no intelligent life here. So why would they visit Liberty, <laughs> Ohio, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and then later it starts getting a little more worrying for someone. And on top of that, she's trying to figure out a way to say, uh, we cannot explain this. We've called and checked in with the FAA and all these other places. We don't have a rational explanation, but she doesn't want to tell them that because she's afraid of causing a panic. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, it's really interesting that, and this is why, you know, there's uh Jason, what was it? Is a, a fireman's manual or something where it actually has how to deal with, um, UFO sightings oh, right. to the public. What manual was that? Yeah, and it's I don't an official remember. book yeah. because I, to be honest that's something that's important if we cannot explain something in our airspace no matter whether it's our own technology somebody else's or really somebody mm. else's yeah how are we supposed to explain that to people in order to not cause mass hysteria
0: the show paranormal witness did a good recreation of this case and i think you know That's a fantastic show. Anyway, they do terrific recreations. They did the best presentation, in my opinion, of the Travis Walton case. It was a good episode. But yeah, this this episode is pretty good on paranormal witness. So um, if you're curious to hear more about this, do check that out because they do talk to the dispatcher and and police officers involved. And um, it's a really fascinating case.
1: Right. And we might add, too, that you can hear a lot of these phone calls to the dispatcher, uh, to the 911 operator, Mm -hmm. um, you know, over the Internet. They are available uh, to the public and pretty scary to listen to the stress in the people's voices. Definitely. Like you said, it started as a joke and then slowly, as they kept trickling in, it became more and more serious.
0: uh,
2: Yeah, Yeah, we'll make sure to put the link up uh, for everyone to to click on and listen to with the episode.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and move on to our interview with researcher and author Peter Lavenda. It's always such a pleasure getting the opportunity to speak with you. So uh, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show, Peter. Not at all. I appreciate it and I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well, the last time you and I spoke was actually at the uh, Contact in the Desert conference. Um, I believe that was 2015, correct?
3: I think you're right.
0: I yeah. think that's when it was. And uh, at that time, you and I spoke about the Secret Machines Project. And that's what we're talking about today. And uh, your contribution to this property is now close, much closer than it was back when we spoke previously. Uh, I guess the, the title of that book has actually been announced and it's uh, available for pre-order now, Right.
3: That's right it's on up on Amazon already. Uh the books will be released in March I believe is the the date right now. So we're we're gunning for that and that's book 1 Secret Machines Gods is the subtitle.
0: And uh some people might not be aware of this and it confuses me because <laughs> there are you know many people who have been following the Secret Machines franchise since its inception but it uh, doesn't seem that everybody's on the same page or doesn't always understand what the, the – the just the kind of larger picture that Secret Machines is. It entails a whole lot of different elements to it. And, uh, you know, Tom has said from the very start that uh, pretty detailed – in Tom's way, uh, what, what it all entails. And, you know, it's never been a secret that, uh, the book element of this was going to be both fiction and nonfiction, the the historical fiction and then the, the nonfiction. Um, and I believe in multiple interviews, he's also stated about the three putting a number to it: three nonfiction and three fiction, um, So now the people are seeing that, yes, there's actually going to be nonfiction books to this property. It's caught some people off guard for whatever reason. But um, talk a little bit about how that works together because we've already seen a historical fiction book come out um, in this franchise written by A.J. Hartley. And now we have your nonfiction element that's coming in and tying into all of this. So how does that work?
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's really a pretty ambitious program, and it's an ambitious vision uh, that Tom initially had. And when we sat around and started talking about it in more depth and in more detail, uh, we kind of fleshed it out and gave it a lot more dimension. Um, sometimes you can't tell a story really clearly using nonfiction. You sometimes have to use fiction. You have to give a kind of context for what's going on and show the emotional um content of what you're doing, and I think that the division between fiction and nonfiction is something we're very familiar with in the West. Uh, it's part of our scientific worldview. you know, there's science over here and there's religion over there, for instance. but there's some countries in which, for instance, the biographies of famous people will be will be put in the in the fiction section of a bookstore or of a library as opposed to a nonfiction. Uh, There are some cultures that believe nonfiction is strictly nothing more than dates and facts and figures. But once you start to tell a story, once you start to tell a narrative, a fictional element comes in. You you know, I was very close for a while to uh, Norman Mailer while he was still alive, and he believed there was such a thing as a nonfiction novel. You know, there's there's this blurring of of identities between the two, which sounds very – you know, obscure and maybe a little bit too intellectual hmm. um, for, 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 for you know, the run-of-the-mill sort of uh, approach to literature, but it actually has a purpose. The the fiction and the nonfiction, it doesn't mean when you're telling fiction that you're lying, you know. You can tell a truth in fiction just as much as you can tell it in nonfiction. And what we're trying to do is trying to show um, the nonfiction um, foundation on which the fictional novels are written, so that people uh, will will scratch their heads and say, "Well, wait a minute, this can't be true, you know, And then they'll look at the nonfiction material and see all the the footnotes, you know, and all the bibliography and all of the the in-depth reporting on the on on you know events that have taken place or uh, famous individuals involved or uh, philosophical uh, treatises that have been written on this sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a kind of multi-level, multimedia approach which is going to be continued because it's not just the books it's also documentary film there's of course the the soundtracks that are going with this there's all sorts of other stuff right that's part of the secret machines project is extremely ambitious and the story cannot be told just with one book uh or even one series of books it, you need you need really both halves of your brain uh to get involved the right and the left uh you know halves of your brain have to be engaged because this phenomenon is it it resists a lot of what we normally think of as science what we normally think of as as a uh, a very logical process of discovery it kind of resists that and so we're stuck with dealing with people who've had sightings or people who've had experiences of one kind or another and you know in in one part of the western world we treat these people and their sightings and their their experiences not as evidence. We treat it as stories. You know, we treat them as narratives. We don't always say they're lying. We may say they're, you know, they're deluded or they're mistaken, or. but it's not true. That's the way it's been handled so far. We're saying that there might be a third way to approach this material. Hmm. And uh, it, it gets a little deep, but it's, you know, it's what we're striving for in this project is to say things that are different and new and to provide um, a different terminology, a different vocabulary for talking about this. It's really hard, you know, when the field has been dominated by terms like UFO and alien and you know all the rest of it. When you start talking about this material, everybody thinks they already know what you're talking about. And what we're saying is, no, you know, it is something different. It's a, it's on a different level. Of understanding, and we're trying to present that, doing the best we can with the help of the people that we've talked to, and uh, with our own you know exposure to various types of disciplines and everything else. We're trying to put together a different kind of an approach to this and to reveal actually in more detail what's really going on. And that's really you know the the end result of all of this is going in that direction.
0: Something that I think is important to highlight and bring to people's attention if they're not aware is just how interconnected this process is. Uh, you've been involved with this property since the very beginning, and you it's not compartmentalized. It's not isolated. You don't have A.J. Hartley working on the historical fiction and you working on the nonfiction. You've all kind of been working together on this whole thing from the start, Right.
3: Yes, we feed into each other on this. I mean, uh, especially in the very beginning, the very first year. Um, AJ, I mean Andrew Hartley and and Tom and I would be together and we'd be talking about this, and then I'd be I'd be sharing documentation. I mean, my end really is all the documents. It's the declassified documents. It's all of the the articles that have been written, uh, you know, in scientific places as well as in as in UFO stuff uh, media. So putting together everything. Plus a lot of additional information that's relevant to this study, which doesn't have UFO stamped all over it, which may be about uh, astronomy, may be about quantum mechanics or, or something else, but relevant material. So putting it all together and having these conversations and then sharing the documents back and forth um, so that everybody is sort of on the same page. So it's uh, it's collaborative, but it's also creative. At the same time, because what happens is you get a kind of of nuclear fission that takes place when you have all these three intellects all trying to to argue their positions and then try to present the material. And then Tom introducing new material that he's had access to. So eventually everything starts to churn and then new new insights are, are made and new discoveries are made. And, you know, we get further and further along.
0: That sounds like such a fantastic way to work, and you know I think it's important that that you guys are all working together and and have since the beginning and sharing these ideas and feeding off each other. That just that's awesome, and I think it it is reflected in the books. I hope people pick up on that. So you know you mentioned the the uh, people that uh, Tom's been working with the uh, the government insiders, these uh, these people that have been Tom's source of information, and you know he's made it pretty clear from the very start um, you know how some of his interactions have gone and you know the public looking from the outside one of the the criticisms or, or red flags people have mentioned from the very beginning is the possibility of course that Tom might be being fed misinformation uh, by these, these people, these advisors, and his response has been no, you know, I, I don't think so because they're not just telling me stuff, they're responding to questions I'm asking or validating things that I'm presenting to them. Um, so he doesn't feel that uh, there's there's misinformation or, or he's being used in any way uh, along those lines. But your personal opinion, I would like to hear how you feel about the information that's coming from these advisors.
3: Sure. Uh, without going into detail about trying to identify them or what, or what they've told us, what I can say is one of the reasons I'm involved in this project, I think the reason, probably the primary reason that Tom uh, approached me on this is the fact that I have – a Certain amount of credibility when it comes to writing history and, and doing investigations and you know, checking my sources and getting two or three different corroborations for weird stuff that I may come up with and that sort of thing. Of actually going and doing that kind of work, uh, I'm I spend a lot of time behind a desk uh, when I'm involved in the writing phase, but the research phase sometimes takes me all over the place, all over the world. So, I think he was he needed that kind of um. Of a steady hand at this thing, to be critical about the information that we were getting, I think that 's probably one of my one of the value the value that I bring to the team where that 's concerned, but also a certain amount of credibility. Um, the information that we 're getting is exactly as you know as Tom said. Uh, it's not that somebody has come to us. It's not a Doty Benowitz situation, you know. Mm-hmm. We don't have an Air Force intelligence officer coming to us and saying, "Guess what, you know," and opening up his black raincoat and saying, "I got some filthy pictures here. I want to show you." You know, <laughs> right. it's not that kind of thing. You know, it's not that kind of deal. Uh, in the first place, the people that we deal with, uh, without getting into details, Doty would not really be in the same room. But more than that, it's more of a question of exactly as Tom said, we're asking the questions. Uh, they're not trying to lead us on. And it's, it's different people in different parts of society, different parts of, uh, of, of, of our military-industrial mm-hmm. complex, let's say, in general terms. Uh, it's different people in different positions of, of knowledge, of influence, of, of whatever you want to call it. They, don't, well, they will not always agree You know that we're not going to get the same cover story you know, from everybody, right? There's just too many people and they're not going to be agreeing on every detail together. They have different areas of expertise. So they're not, they're not always talking about the same information. They're talking about their end of things or what they know or what they feel. And we're getting all of that and we're, we're checking it all against each other. It's, it's a kind of a gargantuan task, at least intellectually, because You've got people telling you, you know, certain amounts, of a big chunk of stuff, and you have to digest it. And at the same time, you're getting a chunk from someplace else. And you're trying to say, okay, how do these things fit together? Do they? Maybe they don't. Maybe these guys are disagreeing, and it's a long process. It's been going on now for about two years, uh, in my case. And I've been taking all of that information and putting it up against everything else that people know in the UFO community and trying to see are there points of connection? Mm. Are there things that are totally off the wall? You know, is there some consistency here? Or have these people that Tom is talking to actually clarified a lot of the confusion that I, I've always found in the UFO community? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we don't have a way of prioritizing, you know, who's who's really reliable and who isn't. Right. You know, it's not that kind of field. You know, you don't have, you know, an academy somewhere giving the blessing on this, you know, uh, investigator and not on this one. Everybody's involved. It's like a it's a rodeo. You know? So you're sitting yeah. there looking at all this material and you're saying, all right, where do I start? You have your Richard Dolan's, you know, and you have your Joseph uh, Farrell's and, and, and people like that. And then you have a lot of other people. And then you're sort of massaging all this and trying to think out where are we going. So, you know, it's a very long answer to what you're asking <laughs> me. but, And I apologize for that. But basically what this is is um, if we were being led, if we were being handled disinformation, as people have claimed – It's like a lot of different people who don't really know each other in different parts of the the world, in different parts of of our country, and they're feeding us different things. And this has got to be the biggest disinformation program ever and so highly articulated, you know, that it would almost have to be impossible. And I don't think anybody's deliberately lying. It doesn't seem that way. I mean, I've interviewed Nazis and terrorists and Klansmen and Mm -hmm. all kinds of people who lie to you or who deceive you, who, who try to put themselves in the best way. This doesn't seem to be this way. And some of the people we're talking to have excellent credentials. They're not unknown um, agents right. working, you know, undercover. These are people that we know that we can we can backtrack, we can find out where they've come from. So it makes us feel a little better on this.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's really good to hear. Um well, secret machines as a whole and uh the the advisors specifically got some uh unwanted attention recently. Uh Unnecessary and unfortunate attention because of WikiLe- Wikileaks and people are familiar with that whole debacle um and you I am speaking to somebody who's Wikileaks famous now, your photo for some reason was uh <laughs> oh, <laughs> thought yeah. to be be something of importance, although that had been uh you know published by tom and <laughs> many times before right. uh old news but uh yeah so Mr. Peter Lavenda is in WikiLeaks. That's pretty exciting. I, I don't know if you can talk at all about it, but from your perspective, I, I know Tom mentioned that, uh, you know, he was having to do some damage control because of that. And that's very understandable. Um, how, how much damage, if any, did that really do to the, uh, the willingness of these people to work with Tom and Secret Machines?
3: Well, I mean, it was a problem, obviously. Um, it was a problem for all of us. I mean, yeah. in one way or another, there was a lot of misinformation about what that represented. People just went nuts mm-hmm. uh, with it. They made all sorts of assumptions. There was all sorts of speculations. Um, I think probably the the part that we regret the most is, you know, names of people that should not have been out there. Yes. But, Um, so that's, that's the negative thing. I mean, we have a certain amount of responsibility, uh, to sources Mm -hmm. and I've always had that my entire life with everything that I've written. Uh, if people say this is background or or I don't want you to use my name or identify me, then I don't, even though I'd love to in many cases. I mean, I've talked to somebody deeply who was deeply embedded in the, in the, the space program who talked to me openly about, you know, a, a program called, called magic you know, that existed. It was a real thing. And, and I can't quite use it yet. I'm looking for corroboration because this guy won't come out and let me use his name and the documentation I got from him. So it's, it's very, you know, it's very for, – for somebody like me who likes to research and then, you know, put it out there, not to be able to is difficult. And so in this case, we were very protective – Naturally, of sources extremely protective. I spoke to no one. I, I mentioned no names. You know, we were all doing this, and then this happens, right? Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's difficult, and it was a problem, and we have recovered. We're going, if anything, even stronger now than we were before. Uh, there's there's a lot that's going on in this in this project, mm. but at the same time, there are a lot of people who are very critical of Tom. They were extremely critical saying that he's just making stuff up, he's right. being led by the nose and all of this. And then this happens over which we had no control. And then suddenly, well, there it is, it's out there. I mean, it's actually proof. We didn't want it this way. Yeah. This was not the way we were looking, you know, to do this. And this was not, you know, obviously it was not done for our branding or marketing efforts. But, you know, the positive, you know, lining, the silver lining on this huge storm cloud was that it kind of validated what Tom's been saying all along. Sure. So that that's the positive takeaway. But on the whole, we wish it hadn't happened because we, we do have people that we respect and people who, you know, we... we we're very grateful for whatever they've they've given it to us, and in some cases you get lists of names and you, people jump to conclusions and they think they know what's going on, and I can tell you they really don't. They've made a lot of assumptions about lots some of,
0: these of assumptions. <laughs> things.
3: They're just totally, <laughs> totally off the wall and just totally wrong. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I could say that from being inside and, and just tell people, you know, don't read everything, you know, you see on the Internet, man, because yeah. it's it's psychotic out there. So uh, so there's been a lot of you know, misinformation for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good to hear. And Peter, let me ask you this. Um, after going really deep down some of these holes now um, through your involvement with the Secret Machines franchise, how if at all has your view about the ufo topic changed
3: that's an interesting question i mean i wrote about this since the very beginning Mm -hmm. uh in sinister forces i was uh i came at the the ufo phenomenon from the history side Mm -hmm. i mean i kept coming across ufo personalities when i was looking at the kennedy assassination Mm -hmm. for instance uh and stuff like that and you know i was never a ufo uh, believer, really. I just would, This was just something that was going on, and there were so many UFO personalities involved in the assassinations that I started to look at it from that point of view. Um, and since then, my, my appreciation for the subject has grown. I mean, I've actually seen, in, in a way, that this is far more important uh, than probably most of the work that I've done in my life. There are points of this phenomenon um, that are very profound— that will have profound implications for us. Mm -hmm. And we've put it in a box. You know, we as human beings have put this entire phenomenon in a kind of box. And it's like not, it's not part of our lives. It's just like something that's cool to think about. Or if somebody, you know, believes in it, then you consider they're crazy or deluded or something as, as skeptics do. But there's actually something deeper at work here. And we've all come to this conclusion, I think. I can speak for myself and I think I can speak for Tom where this is concerned, that there is a deeper Element, A deeper aspect of this phenomenon and the implications are tremendous for us for for human beings in general and we've ignored it uh, For stupid reasons for silly reasons we've ignored it because we didn't have you know the physical evidence that we needed or or other things But there's other implications to this to this phenomenon. There's it's it's operating on different levels It's questioning and challenging us in ways that I think we never thought possible and we've tried to ignore and I think that's that's what's gotten me very involved and very enthusiastic about this project.
0: Well, Peter, uh, since I first heard about this project, I've been really, really, really looking forward to your contribution. And I'm so excited to finally see that uh, we're going to get a glimpse of it, starting with Secret Machines, Gods, an official investigation of the UFO phenomenon coming out in March, I believe. And let me ask you something just Off topic here to close out, I've wanted to ask you this for a while. Um, Being an expert on Nazi Germany and uh, having your your relationship with Tom, I'm assuming you're familiar with Annie Jacobson's book, Area 51? Sure. What is your take on that, on her conclusion with the the Roswell aspect?
3: Yeah. um, I mean, her book up to that point is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, really, very interesting, and the whole paperclip stuff and all of that, you know, is is right up my alley. I mean, this is the stuff that uh, that I've been doing for the last you know thirty years or so. Uh, when it got to the to the Area Fifty One, the Roswell stuff, and Area Fifty One in general, but specifically the Roswell crash, and her take on it, um, I think, how can I put this in a way that's going to make sense? Um, it's not true from my perspective, okay, I'm talking only for myself, it's not true literally, the way she's presented it. Mm -hmm. I think that she's in error there, Um, but I think there's an element of truth in what she's talking about that needs to be explored more deeply. I think she was, in the end, like many of us are, led astray a little bit with this information. Uh, It's kind of a hangout, you know, and uh, people reacted to it in different ways. But from my point of view, I think that she was almost right, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Sure. But, but not right enough so that the thing kind of falls apart. My problem with some of this material is that you can get really close to the truth, but if you jump the gun and you publish too soon, you risk devaluing your own work and invalidating the work of other people at the same time because the skeptics and the people who are out there trying to shoot this down are looking for anything that's wrong. If you don't dot your I or cross your T, that would be enough, you know, to devalue your entire, you know, years years and years of research and work. So you have to be very careful in this field, I think. And at the same
0: time, plenty of people to jump on that incomplete, uh, kind of rushed, (laughs) not fully researched uh, claim and run with that as well
3: well that's the problem she didn't yeah. You know, and, yeah. I mean, there was no corroborating evidence. I think you could sink your teeth into right. and people fight with me all the time. They want me to come out and say definitive things about things, you know, and I tell them, I just don't have the evidence. I don't have enough documentation or just enough evidence to feel comfortable coming down one side or the other. And I love so that about things.
0: you, Peter. You're, you're a responsible researcher and, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's rare in this field. So I, I really value and and respect you for that um because it's something that i always say and and something i firmly believe that when somebody claims to have all the answers run the
3: other way oh Oh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) double time be very careful about that yeah
0: i'll ask you one more question peter i'm i'm so happy to see uh that jacques valet has the forward in the upcoming secret machines book random question what how do you feel about that
3: Oh, it's, that's for me, that's an honor. It was a trip, really. Yeah. Uh, when Tom told me that, uh, that that Jacques Vallée had actually read uh, book one and was enthusiastic about it and agreed to write the foreword, I was blown away. I mean, I've been reading Jacques Vallée for years. I mean, even before I became that interested or that involved in the UFO phenomenon, uh-huh. I was reading Jacques Vallée during the Sinister Forces period. So we're talking, you know, the 1990s, really. Yeah. Um, so I was always um, – I was very impressed by the way he approached the subject. I mean, he does it in such a, an intellectual way. I mean, an intelligent way. Not intellectual necessarily, but intelligent is really the word I'm looking for. He he doesn't just you know jump the shark on it. He goes and he you know meticulously has his own opinion about it, which you know a lot of people may not agree with him. But Jacques Vallee and sort of John Keel, sort of in that area. You know they're looking at the phenomenon from, from a, a different angle completely, and that's something that I liked a lot. And I have an anecdote about that because, as we all know, Jacques Vallée was played by François Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? Uh, the French, uh, you know, UFO expert. And I saw the screening of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, in New York when it first came out, oh, wow. the actual screening, and I was sitting in the row behind François Truffaut. You oh know? wow! So I felt I was sort of in the middle of the real and the imaginary. You know, that I finally at one point was able to meet Jacques Vallee, and it was just incredible. I mean, I said, you know, I, I saw your doppelganger. I mean, you know, <laughs> 30, 40 years ago in the seventies in New York, and you know, here I am seeing the real thing.
0: Oh, it was a very fantastic. strange,
3: bizarre, bizarre set of events. But. Yeah. But I, I admire Valet's uh, integrity as well. I mean, his intelligence, his approach to the subject matter, his perspective, which is kind of unique on all of this, and the idea that this whole thing may be a control mechanism. To me, it's, very, it's a very interesting perspective on all of this, and it takes it to a different level, which is what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, and having him right there at the beginning of this book, uh, kind of kicking the whole thing off adds a great, great level of credibility to the whole project, I think.
3: We're, we're very proud and very happy of that. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Peter, I am
0: so excited for you and for everybody else that people are finally going to get to read what you've been <laughs> working so hard for so long on now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'll definitely have to have you back on the show to talk more about Secret Machines after the book comes out so I can discuss it with you after I've read it. Um, And then talk about where the project is going from there.
3: Absolutely. Outstanding.
0: Peter, thank you so much. And uh, as always, wish you continued success with uh, going down these deep rabbit holes.
3: Many thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Peter for taking the time to talk with us today. Peter's fantastic, and we're all pretty excited to read the first nonfiction book in the Secret Machines franchise. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of UFO Mod Pod. This show and other great content can always be found on our website, which is RoguePlanet.tv. UFO Mod Pod is also on Google Play Music, and of course, you can find UFO Mod Pod on iTunes. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a stellar review if you enjoy the show, please. Also, we love hearing from you. Let us know what stories you'd like us to discuss. Or let us know if there's a UFO-related event coming up, and we'll be happy to mention it on the show. I will point out that the uh, historical case we discussed today was a request from a listener. So just make a note of that. We do listen to requests, and look how fast they get on the show. Just saying, Mm -hmm. guys. Send us your ideas, and we will take them into consideration. We have a contact form on the website you can use You can email us at HQ at RoguePlanet.TV, or you can find us individually on Facebook, Twitter, and all over the interwebs. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you for hanging out with us today. I'm Jason McClellan.
1: I'm Ryan Sprague.
2: And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. And in the words of John Lennon, it's weird not to be weird.